Hello, welcome back to Chief Wellbeing Officer. I'm Stephen McGregor. This is episode 49, Mission with Rasmus Halgard. I thought this would be the perfect way to finish the spring-summer season on the mountain overlooking Barcelona. Fits with a lot of the themes in this episode with Rasmus about mindfulness. This is my mindful mountain. I get up here running mostly. I hiked this morning an early alarm clock. It's currently 7.03. And, uh, but this is how I get mindful. This is how I escape from a lot of what's going on down there. But the importance of taking the value of what you get here and implementing it down there, implementing it in the world of work, implementing it in the chaos. And I think that's what Rasmus does. He looks at mindful leadership. He works with organizations worldwide to change the way that they are leading, to change the way that they are working. And I think he's on a very noble mission to do that. In this interview, I really felt the calm energy and the determination that Rasmus has. And uh, this is a fantastic episode to finish this spring summer season. That's it from me. I'm gonna take a summer break out of social media, a bit of offline therapy. Also with the podcast, we'll be back in the autumn and hopefully I'll be back in the autumn with more news on what's going on with me in the world of well-being. A lot of exciting projects um, about to start. Um, I just wanna thank my guests in this spring summer season, Stephen de Souza, Els van der Helm, James Hewitt, Poultry Realita, and Aurelie Gautier, and of course, Rasmus Halgard for this final episode. Keep well, everyone. Thanks for joining me uh, this season, and I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Ciao. Hello, Rasmus. Welcome to Chief Wellbeing Officer. Where are you today and what are you working on? I am uh, today. I've had, a, I've had a very intense week with a lot of client work and I was in London last night and came back late. So honestly, today I am working on just taking an easy day for myself. That's great. You know, I was thinking this week and related to the last episode in, in this podcast and the issue of belonging. And, and I mentioned the introduction when, I, when I'm with my dog and when I've been traveling and when I come home, and my dog is there, then I know that I'm home and I'm just glad to be there, right? And yeah. she makes me mindful, which is one of the things that I'd love to talk to you about in, in terms of your whole approach to mindfulness over the years. Mm. How, how has it been for you um, the last couple of years? Of course, you're, you're, you know, you're running a business, then you've got your own personal family commitments as well. You know, how have the COVID years been for you in terms of your own well-being? I think it's a mixed it's a mixed bag to be honest. I think the the, the first thing that happened was um, we got really busy because we had to turn everything into online. That was a like a stressful moment in itself. But then I had to stop traveling, and that was incredible. That was really wonderful to be sleeping in the same bed every night, and I I haven't done that for past ten years, at least fifteen years. I've been traveling some two hundred days a year, and um, that was wonderful and just having generally more time with the kids with the cats but all of that was good and then i think as for many the thing that you're not anymore traveling sitting in taxis sitting in a bus you know sitting in a train being on a plane 
then suddenly you can have more meetings. And I think that's what, what, what certainly I've seen in the past two years, more meetings, more pressure. And uh, this January, I decided it's, it's not sustainable. And, uh, and so I basically put a limit to my working hours and my wonderful EAs, you basically take care of that. So it's been up and down and up and down. And I think I'm finding a, finding a good way forward. Good, glad to hear. You know, I think I first came across your work, Rasmus, in terms of uh, mindfulness. I think it was back, I was teaching at IMD Business School in, in Lausanne, and I think you gave one of the keynotes in orchestrating winning performance. I think it was maybe 2014, 2015. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as how you got into this, this world of, of, of mindfulness. So how did that journey, what did that look like? And I'd also love to know, you know, your own personal practice and, and your own approach to mindfulness and what that looks like even today. And maybe even yeah. did, did some of that practice help you through those COVID years of the last, uh, yeah. you know, last few years? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a personally, it's a long journey. When I was about uh, 17 or so, I started, you know, growing up in a Western European country. I started to get the sense that there was just something fundamentally wrong with the whole notion of going to school, high school, getting your degree, getting a job, getting a better car, getting a bigger house, all that stuff just didn't, didn't add up for me. And, and, um, and I just had this very strong orientation. There's something in Nepal that's calling for me. And I went to Nepal and I met some really wonderful Tibetan Buddhist teachers that taught me meditation and basically gave me a path. And, and that has been the path of my life since then. And I've spent years in retreats, spent a ton of time in many monasteries around the world um, for my own and for deepening my understanding of how the mind works so that I can support our clients better in managing their mind and thereby be both happier, healthier, and, and certainly higher performing. And, and these days, my practice, where it used to be, you know, for the first 20 years, it was very disciplined. I would get up multiple times every night for 20-minute sections and practice. I would get up at 6 o'clock. I would sit for an hour or two, I would work a bit, then I would sit for another hour. It was very, very, very regimented. I think maybe with maturity and, I don't know, having had so much discipline these days, I honestly spent more time just looking at the sky. That, that has become my mindfulness practice. All that's very strong, diligent and disciplined practice has really created a wonderful, um, path it's possible for me just to sit and, and look at the sky and and for me that's that's where my mind expands and where i'm more creative yeah that's great yeah i can see that i mean sometimes if we put too you know too much structure too many rules on something even if it is by its definition positive then it can tip the balance in the other direction and, and I've often said that, you know, with, with clients and in my own programs over the years that we're often looking down, right? We're always in our work and in our worries. And maybe that's a device or maybe that's just kind of in our own thoughts and just lifting your gaze, right? And looking up, there's tremendous yeah. value in that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a balancing act, right? And, I, and I've been very aware of this myself over the years, you know, a long kind of career and well-being and that, I was always very mindful, let's say, of of maintaining, 
you know, authenticity in terms of, you know, if I'm going to teach a, a class on sleep and I'm traveling overnight, you know, I don't want to turn up to that session visibly tired and exhausted. And I'm saying, you must legitimize sleep, right? Yeah. You know, with, with the life that you described, which was temporarily at least kind of not the case during COVID, but when you're really busy, you've got client work, you just come back from London yesterday, mm. maintaining that presence of, of looking up at the sky when you have a very busy executive life. I mean, anything in that? I mean, you just kind of, do you reset once a week and make sure like, hey, this has been a really busy period. Potential project is growing, which is great, but there is a limit to what I'm going to give. I have to maintain that balance myself. I mean, can you talk us through some of that? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question and, and something that I personally reflecting on. Also, my partners are doing that these days. We have chosen and allowed ourselves to be very busy because clients were demanding a lot and and and, and there was never an end to clients. And um, and it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost on health, on sleep. And I've seen the last year and a half, my sleep has been much poorer than ever before in my life. And 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 I've been starting to see a sleep coach to get some help with that. Because even someone like me that has practiced mindfulness for many, many years, if you put too much pressure and strain on yourself it just has a price on your physical on your mental and and how you sleep and and at least i have come to the conclusion that even though i'm the the managing partner of a global firm i have to set pretty strong boundaries because otherwise there's never an end to the demand on my time and i have to to take charge of that and, and so that's what i've done and I'm, I'm i'm really happy about that i'm happy to see that it's actually possible as well yeah. So I'm going to propose something. Let me know what you think about it. It's a Friday early afternoon. You just got back um, from traveling back home after a busy week. Um, yeah, I've had a busy week too. And, and I'm sure many people listening or watching are perhaps also going through a lot of work, a lot of things in their life. Could we perhaps try, you know, just for a brief few moments, some practice just now? Could you lead us through a short exercise on mindfulness? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, of course, that would be wonderful. I would enjoy that, certainly. So uh, so let's take a few minutes. And for you that are listening, I'll invite you to close your eyes. Easier to turn inwards with the eyes closed and just drop your awareness into your body and notice what does your body feel like right now? And try to notice the breath which resides in your body, simply noticing the in-breath and the out-breath. And allow each out-breath the natural release of tension, of stress, of thoughts, anything that's going on for you that seems tense as you breathe out, breathe that out. And with each uh, inhalation, notice the 
inflow of fresh air, oxygen to the brain, sense of waking up, becoming present. Breathing in, waking up, being present and breathing, releasing and relaxing so that after a little while you get to a more natural state of ease, relaxation and fully present. And let's just sit like this for another 30 seconds. And then when you feel ready, you can let go of the breath and open your eyes and return to this podcast. Wonderful. Thanks for that. You know, I often do a mindful minute in, in sessions, but that was different because I didn't have to worry about leading it, right? I was just going with the flow. And, and that was, that was a, a lovely difference. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rasmus. Um, final point on, on the mindfulness area. When you bring this to really busy people and, and senior leaders within an organization, what, what's yeah. the range of some of the responses? Do they welcome it with open arms because they know that it's really going to help them? Are they skeptical? Do they want to see the science behind it first? What's some of the things that goes on? These days, not so much skepticism, like everybody has read somewhere that mindfulness is good for your blood pressure, good for your stress level, good for your sleep, good for all kinds of things. So skepticism is much less than it used to be. Having said that, it's always good to lead with science. We're very research and data driven. So we always lead with a bit of that. And then in the end, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. So let people try it. Most people, when they try it, they feel that sense of calm, of ease, and they want more of it. And, and looking at it operationally, um, because I was struck with your comments on when you were first in this very rigorous mode of practice and, and doing an hour or two, and I kind of looked at it, and, and I haven't studied to any length that you have yourself and, and travelled and... and, and you know, worked and, and spent time with Tibetan monks. My background is in design thinking and engineering, and I often looked at how can we make this very practical. Mm. I've been looking, okay, how can you do this in a minute, right? You know, look at mm. even breathing and, and diaphragmatic breathing, the nervous system, a minute a day. If you start with that, it's going to work. Sometimes if we go too far to 10 minutes for busy people, maybe they don't do it. Mm. What are some of the kind of practical outputs that, that some of your clients end up with hmm. is it is it a minute several times a day is it 10 minutes in the morning is it when they are faced with crises at work that they have that go-to practice hmm. i mean obviously there's many different options but what are some of the hmm. things that you're finding with some of these busy people so our our specialty has been to find a million ways of bringing mindfulness into whatever you do, whether that's being in a meeting or doing an email or sitting down in the morning to prioritize. 
to bring mindfulness practice into that because you're absolutely right if you tell people to sit for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever they won't often do it and therefore they feel like a failure and then they abandon it so it's really about creating all kinds of moments of informal practice whether it's a minute or more whether it's shorter it doesn't matter just that it's repeated many times that's what makes the difference and for each individual it's things that grab on so some people do it in the lift on the way up to the office some people do it in the car before they leave the car some people before do it before they go to bed or before they enter a meeting and having said all of that all of that is good and great but mindfulness practice you know is really a neurological rewiring of the brain and thinking that by doing a second here and a minute there is really going to make a difference it's the same as believing if i just get up from my chair and jump like three times once an hour I'm going to be like fit and can run a marathon, but that's just not the case. That's just not the case. So it's just a matter of what do you want to get out of it? And you need to equal the, the input that you put into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Let's talk about your, um, your new book, Compassionate Leadership. And I think one of the messages there, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk around the need for greater empathy with leaders in the last few years. And I think one of the big things in the pandemic, and, and, and certainly a lot of the focus of, of our work during the pandemic was, you know, kind of reskilling leaders, leading at distance and, and, and the extra toll that that took and how they could communicate and how they could, yeah, connect at distance. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of your work on compassion is saying we need more than empathy. We need to move beyond empathy towards mm-hmm. compassion. So if you could talk a little bit about that and the need for that, please. And, and some of the other main messages in the book, that, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. So, yeah, so there has been a lot of writing and teaching about empathy and leadership. And I think for a good reason, leaders didn't used to be very empathetic, but it has probably over-indexed or been mistaken a little bit in the last years in that if as a leader you lead with empathy, that literally means means that when one of your people is suffering from stress or whatever, that you sit down next to them and you experience that suffering as well. That's what empathy is. I feel with you. That doesn't help people. It just doesn't. What people need is someone that actually listens, understands, and then possibly do something about it. So empathy doesn't really help. It's a nice connector. So it's important to connect with empathy. But to really be a good leader, you need to then move into compassion, which means to move to some kind of action mode and see how you can help to solve it. But not just that. Empathy is not good for you as a leader. Because if you have a group of 10 people that are reporting to you and you have a pandemic or you have a war going on and people are anxious and and feeling uncertain and feeling stressed, you're going to take a lot of that shit on. And that can lead to a lot of distress and burnout, ultimately. So empathy, while a very, very, very important skill in in leadership, we need to move from empathy and into compassion. So the whole mantra that we have is connect with empathy, meaning connect so that people can see that you see what they feel, but then move into compassion. What can you do about it? I love that. I love, um, yeah, because I've thought about that. Of course, leaders are people too. They have the same pressures and they have the same challenges and and family commitments as anyone in their team and if you're a highly empathetic leader you're going to feel that and then you have a headcount 
as you go through an organization, so the more senior the leader is, the, the larger headcount, the more people we have in their team, if they're empathetic and they're really, you know, with each one of them, that, that's a recipe for burnout, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so moving that to action is great. But you know, what else is in the book? And I love the subtitle, doing, doing hard things in a human way. Could you give us an example yeah. of, of doing a hard thing in a human way? Yeah, let, let me explain the concept first because it's a, it's a pretty profound concept. Not because I came up with it, but because it came out of the research. We basically asked 350 CEOs and CHROs. CEOs because they're the ones making the difficult decisions and CHROs because they're the ones that implement the difficult decisions. And with that, I mean any CEO to set something along the lines of I can make billion dollar decisions and I will sleep soundly at night. But the moment that I do something that will hurt someone, I can be sleepless for nights on, on end. So those are the two people, two kind of people that either make the difficult decisions or implement them. And we asked them basically, what is the most difficult in your job? And it is almost always the people issues. It's not the money, it's not the strategy, it's not the vision, it's not all of that stuff. It is doing difficult things with people. And it comes by the nature of leadership. When we're leaders, we have to look at the long horizon, at the greater good. And that means sometimes we have to sacrifice. Or in terms of looking at the greater good and the longer term, we have to push people and drive people, give them tough feedback, stretch them. That's doing hard and it comes with being a leader. And then the problem that many leaders have is that they think they have to choose between either being a really good leader, meaning tough, hard, drive people and push, or be a nice, sweet person that pleases people. But that is an absolute false dichotomy. It does not have to be that way. And as a leader to realize that those two can actually go together, you can do hard things in a human way, so essential because it's a real craft, it's a skill, it's a set of behaviors and habits that you develop. And suddenly what our research showed, when you're both hard and human at the same time, people have way higher job satisfaction, way higher engagement. They just score much higher on everything, including well-being and, yeah. and reduce stress. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It reminds me and I haven't read the book, but perhaps similar in vain to kind of radical candor from Kim Scott in terms of, you know, right. let's not beat around the bush here, but let's, you know, even adaptive leadership, right? Adaptive leadership is like, let the team feel the heat to a pressure they can, they can, they can cope with, you know, mm. don't protect them, over, over protect them like a parent from yeah. threats. And then just yeah. in the longer term, that's going to be better for them. Yeah. When you were talking there, I, I started to think about even, and a lot of team leaders, I think, have this issue around closeness, uh, friendships, relationships. And even in the last episode, Potri Realita talked about how we have a need to reset our relationships with the world, but with our, our peers in the workplace. Does that set us up for a, for a healthy relationship? Can a boss be a friend to a team member? Have you looked at some of these issues within Potential Project? <laughs> yeah, it's a real question and it's something that many leaders are struggling with and I think one question is how do we define a friend if we define a friend as someone who we are willing to push out of their 
comfort zone for their better ship, then leaders and employees should absolutely be friend. And both ways, it's not just one way, it goes both ways. So yes, I think it is a very healthy thing to have a friendly relationship with employees. If we don't, then what do we have transactional? Nobody wants to be in a transaction relationship and certainly not the younger generations. There's no way they will stay with a boss that is transactional. So I think the friend analogy, while it can be misunderstood in many ways, if we see a friend as someone who pushes you out of the comfort zone, yeah, go for it. Yeah, great. I think potential project, what I've loved about your work is it has been, it has been based on research over the years. Um, what's next for you, if, that, if that's possible to share, or at least do you have any ideas on That'd be a really, really interesting research question or a current hypothesis because we're at such an interesting time right now, you know, listening of restrictions, coming back. Hmm. Anything in the mix there that you're going to look at research-wise over the next, the remaining part of 2022? I'll, I'll share a little bit of bigger perspective. It's going to stretch into three, four, and five, I believe. It's the whole concept of uh, selfless leadership and research really will be starting in that area. And the reason for that is we're seeing a world that is in so many ways more tormented than ever. And I think the most obvious issue is the climate crisis, where the people that are supposed to take action here, so the politicians are paralyzed or looking for re-election and therefore not being selfless. They're looking at how can I be re-elected, not what is the best for the country and for the world long-term? A selfless leader would by definition only look at the latter and make some very radical decisions on the climate. Yeah. But the same goes for so many other things that the world with so many trouble needs to have more leaders that are way more selfless than we see now. Yeah. And so doing research into what does that mean and how does that, how does that show up in, in, in how we lead I think it's a, it's a very important piece of work that, that I'm considering doing, yeah. Great. Wishing you the best with that. You know, it reminds me of, and it was kind of stalled to a degree by, um, by the pandemic, and there was some controversy around it as well, but Mark Benioff's op-ed a few years ago on, look, we need to move beyond shareholder view of business towards all stakeholders. And, and a lot of my work, many moons ago was looking at corporate social responsibility and, and even innovation, right? You're looking at all stakeholders, not just shareholders, yeah. and recognising that government isn't going to step into that gap and that business and, and leaders are the ones that are going to make the difference, right? What, so what, true, so true. What's for potential project then? I mean, you, you've been very successful since you founded the company. What's the vision for you? Is it just a case of trying to increase scale and impact, um, you know, transformation through leaders who obviously have a multiplier effect. You know, mm. what's the next few years looking like? You're just trying to grow and, and have as much positive societal impact as, as you can. What, what, what's in that space? The short answer I mean, our purpose is noble and it's very simple to create a more human world of work where people can really show up in themselves and feel a sense of growth and fulfillment simply by being in contact with our workplace. That's a, that's, that's the, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful purpose. We just need to do more of it, period. And uh, 
And our challenge is not so much uh, finding clients that are interested in it because we are we are swamped and we simply don't have resources. Now that's where we're struggling. So if anybody out there is hearing this, you have great skills in uh, in leadership development, mindfulness, and you have a big good heart, uh, please contact us because we need you. Brilliant, absolutely. Um, and you know, I think we're seeing that kind of skills labor shortage in many sectors even recently as, as we come back people or sectors have been taken by surprise and i can see that that would be a that, that, that that's what you need also to grow the tech side i think that's always an interesting one right because tech allows us to scale um but in many ways tech is the source of a lack of well-being and a lack of presence do you have any thoughts sure. on that? Is it just maintaining that balance and using tech when it's good, but recognizing that it can be a threat to our well-being and, and, and mindfulness as well? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. Tech is the cause of most of the problems that we see today. And tech can also be used in noble, good ways. And we see lots of cases of that, whether that's Headspace or Thrive or Calm, all those wonderful apps. I think the challenge that we also see is, and this was a study done by BCG, that the uptake of the clients that pick up these apps, um, while there's a, about 15% that actually downloads the app, it's only about 3% that uses it actively. So that means you reach only 3% of the organization that is in no way a critical mass. It is in no way moving the needle. It's just like lightly touching on a few individuals. So until tech becomes more sophisticated, more intelligent, more intimate than it is now, it's not tech that's the same. Honestly, it is not. And, and what we see is a, is a return back to more human. All the leadership work we do these days, they used to ask for our digital solutions. Nobody wants digital these days. At least that's what we see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a fatigue there. You know, we, we we went into it, you know, all the way in the last couple of years, and there's a fatigue now, and people just want connection. You know, I am encouraged. I, I love that word that you used about intimacy, right? And how can tech, that next, you know, generation, whether that's AI-powered, how can it be more intimate? I am encouraged, yeah. however, there's a lot of startups that I've, I've seen the last couple of years or, or even several months that are really, you know, coming you know close to these questions you know whether it, often mental health is, is is the big one right but i think there's a lot of motivation behind it right to, to, yeah, to make yeah. a difference within organizations yeah and hopefully some some of these will make a difference so let's let's see yeah. what happens yeah, yeah. I, I i do think that there's a case for that one uh one company that we are having good conversations with now wisa they're called um they basically have created an, 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 an artificial intelligent uh, uh, app bot that helps people with anxiety and stress and other mental disorders. And it's just programmed so well that people have that sense of having an intimate conversation with someone they trust. And that gives the right answers that you need in, in, in all kinds of different situations. So I think there is a future for it. We're just not there yet. And then when it comes to media, I think there's for well-being and mental health, there's a massive opportunity here. Leadership development is so contextual. I think a few things can be learned digitally. I think in the end, a lot of this is human interaction. 
And I could be wrong, but I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's been great talking to you today, Rasmus. Just tying it up with two questions that we've asked everyone in, in this spring-summer season. As we come out of the restrictions of, of COVID and we hope that we don't just copy and paste the way that we did things before, with a view of the new system that we should aim for, um, and maybe this is connected to some of your previous comments, is there one thing that we need more than most? Is there one message that you'd like to share with the mm -hmm. audience today? What do we need to do? We need to create leaders and systems in organizations that are way more human. That is the way for better productivity, better engagement and human fulfillment and has to both focused on leaders and systems. Great. Wishing you the best with that mission, a very noble mission, as you said. And the final one, a song, please, with my Desert Island Discs hat. Is there a special song for you? What is it and why is it special? <laughs> oh, man, I used to be a musician. I could go on for ages talking about wonderful music. Um, what comes first to mind, um, last night there was a Metallica played their first concert in three years. 200 meters from where I live. And I was lying in my bed until 2.30 at night and bouncing wow. at, the, at the tones of the Enter Sandman. I love it. And yeah. that's definitely one of them. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. Yeah, and it's funny, with Enter Sandman and other tunes from like ACDC, I remember when my son was growing up and, and he would listen to them. And I don't know what it is with young kids. He's like three, four years old and he's really going for it, right? He's really rocking out to some of these songs. It was wonderful to see, but a great choice, a great choice. So Rasmus, thanks again for your time, for your insights. Great to talk to you and looking forward to many more conversations. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Stephen.